Our scripture reading today is from Micah 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. He removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe and those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together, like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Eric, for reading that passage <clears throat> for us this morning. Looking forward to walking through it here in a moment. I, I wanted to take just the opening part of this message to talk a little bit about Ash Wednesday, which actually fits kind of well into Micah chapter two. So when I'm eight years old, I, I, I have become the sole owner as an eight-year-old of a, um, about a four inch in diameter die-cast Millennium Falcon. It was awesome. That spaceship, you know, Han Solo's ship from Star Wars. Love this thing. It was perfect. It was just the right size for me. I absolutely loved it. My family at that point was pretty new to the church. Uh, we went to a church that was very highly liturgical, uh, observed the liturgical seasons of the year, including Ash Wednesday, uh, which was the kickoff to the season of Lent. Ash Wednesday is this coming Wednesday. That's why we're having our Ash Wednesday service here in just a couple of days. We're going to hold that here at 6 p.m. And so it seemed appropriate to open this sermon by, by talking a little bit about the meaning behind Ash Wednesday. So I grew up with this tradition, but we were learning it as we went. And one of the things that you do 
in Ash or for the season of Lent, at least we did growing up, it's kind of a tradition with Lent, is you give something up, right? Uh, for Catholics, one of the things that Catholics give up is meat, uh, which is why Strangely, McDonald's starts really pushing the filet of fish sandwich because it's not really meat, I guess. Um, that is, by the way, the tradition I'm talking about that I grew up in was, was in the Catholic Church. And, and so we would go to Ash Wednesday services and the minister would put the mark of the cross on my forehead with this mix of ash and olive oil and it would stick there and then I would kind of forget that it was there. I'd be the kid in the grocery store with the smudge on his forehead asking his mom for a candy bar later that day. But it was placed there by this minister and what he would do and what I will do on Ash Wednesday here during this service is he would lean forward as the person came up and almost in a whisper, he would say these words. From dust you were made and to dust you shall return. Remember that you will die one day. And then you'd go back to your seat and the next person would come up let me just take this moment to say, when we do an Ash Wednesday service here, it's not going to be weird. It's also going to be weird, but it's not going to be that weird. But I wanted to talk about it just to kind of take a little bit of the mysticism out of it and say this is something that people do, right? We do things where, where we, we call it a sacramental act. It's not a sacrament, but it's a sacramental act where, where you engage with some sort of physical... Uh, ceremony or physical display that represents a spiritual, an inward spiritual reality. And that's what happens on Ash Wednesday. It was lost on me as a kid with my Millennium Falcon, which by the way is what I gave up for Lent, was my Millennium Falcon. I forgot to tell you why I was even mentioning <laughs> that I had a Millennium Falcon. It seemed enough at the time to just tell you that I had it. But I gave it up for Lent. And I remember my mom put it on top of the refrigerator, just kind of over the door where I couldn't see it anymore. And I remember walking into the kitchen during that season of Lent being acutely aware that it was up there. It was just out of my reach, but it was, it was important because I was taking this time to reflect on what Christ had done. The season where we think about our mortality as a way of preparing our hearts to celebrate Easter, to celebrate the fact that our mortality is not the end of the story for those whose faith is in Christ, that our faith is in him, our trust is in him, and because of that, even on that day when we come to die, it's a day where we come to live. It was lost on me though that day that it was meant to bring me face to face with my mortality, but the older I get, the more I treasure the responsibility of remembering that one day I will come to die. Because it helps us navigate really the theme of this sermon series on Micah, and that theme is forgiveness. See, Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of Lent, which is a liturgical season that is focused on our Lord's passion and his resurrection. And so early Christians developed this custom of having a 40-day season of spiritual preparation for the celebration of Easter. It's all about getting ourselves ready spiritually, psychologically, to step into Easter Sunday morning ready to celebrate the magnitude of what has happened there. So there's a minister that I read who, who said this about Lent, kind of giving some history behind it. He said, historically, during this season, 
converts to the faith were prepared for holy baptism. It was also a time when persons who had committed serious sins and had separated themselves from the community of faith were reconciled by repentance and forgiveness. And they were restored to participation in the life of the church. And he says, in this way, the whole congregation is reminded with baptism and restoration. The whole congregation is reminded of the mercy and forgiveness proclaimed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the need that we all have to renew our faith. And so we use ashes as a sign of mortality. Ashes are something that has been used as a sign of mortality and repentance, a long-standing tradition in both Christianity and in Jewish worship. You read about it in the Old Testament, sackcloth and ashes. It's a, it's a way of remembering that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. The imposition of the ashes, which is the actual act of putting the ashes on, on your forehead, what that is, is it's a sacramental act. It's a, it's a powerful, nonverbal, visceral, physical way of using our bodies to participate in the call to repentance and reconciliation. And so this coming Wednesday night, we're going to do that. We're going to have that here as a worship service where we will administrate the imposition of the ashes. And I will lean forward and I will say to you, from the dust you were made into the dust you shall return. Remember that one day you will die. And then we will prepare to set our hearts to meditate on the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ, which is demonstrated for us in the cross and is gloriously secured for us in the resurrection as we look forward to celebrating Easter Sunday. Okay, so I hope you come to that. What does Ash Wednesday have to do with Micah chapter 2? Let me connect them. What's described in Micah chapter 2, what Eric just read for us, is a kind of a wickedness in the world that is completely out of touch with the truth of our mortality. It's completely out of touch with the idea, the truth, that one day you will come to die. And instead what you have is you have people who are just plotting to take advantage of their neighbors now and mocking God's rightful authority over them. They're living as though this life is all that there is. And if Easter tells us anything at all, it tells us this life is not all there is, thankfully. And so I want to walk through the passage. I'm actually going to reread it a little bit at a time because I feel like it's one of those passages that we would benefit from going through a second time. Uh, we're going to talk through it, and we're going to end up then unpacking God's promises to gather up a remnant who will be led by Christ. So it starts like this. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand to do so. They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and take them away. And they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Okay, so here we're getting into the specific sins for which God is going to judge his people in Micah. What's happening is there are people who are planning evil acts. They're lying in their beds thinking about ways that they can exploit their neighbors. And then when the sun comes up, they carry it out. And they do it without fear of consequences. Why? Well, because they're in a position of power to just take they see a field and they want it, and so they just take it. They covet, 
and then they defraud their neighbors. And what this does is it doesn't just take away their land, but it takes away a man's inheritance. It takes away his ability to live free. And then in verse 3, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. You shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. What he's saying is disaster is coming. There's nothing you can do about it. What's the disaster he's talking about? It's the exile. They may take a field from a neighbor, but the Assyrians and the Babylonians are coming and they're going to take it all. And these oppressors, these people who are oppressing their neighbors, they won't be able to stop it. Verse 4, in that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we're utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. What's he saying here? He's saying, when the Lord allows this exile... These oppressors are stealing from their neighbors. They are going to be utterly ruined. Why? Because the Lord's going to take everything from them, just as they're doing with their neighbors. And then when the land is restored, God's, when the land is restored to God's people, these oppressors, these thieves who are taking from their neighbors, they're going to have no say in how it's redistributed. They're going to lose everything. And so the passage goes on, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things, disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly, but lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people, you drive out from their delightful homes. From their young children, you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. And then he says this, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and fine drink, he would be the preacher for this people. What's going on here? He's saying that the Lord's imminent judgment comes upon these oppressors of Judah and Israel, and they will plead for the prophets to just stop. Just stop talking. Please stop talking. They will deny the possibility of judgment, but that judgment will come anyway, and it will come in the force of an army, an invading army. Why? Because these oppressors who are taking from their neighbors have risen up like an enemy against God's people. They take away a man's dignity. They take away a woman's splendor. And they do it all without thought of repercussion. And then false prophets come along and they rise up and they promise peace and they promise wine when there is none. And because that will be what the oppressors want to hear, they will then look to these false prophets and say, you'll be our prophets now. And they'll seek comfort in lies. And when they do that, It'll verify that the truth of the real prophets doesn't even matter to them anymore. All they want to hear is what they want to hear. And then the Lord says this, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, and I will gather the remnant of Israel. 
and I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass through the gate, going out by it, and their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Now we come to the first promise in this book, the promise of a shepherd king. Sound familiar? The promise of a shepherd king. The Lord will gather a remnant from a fold with a multitude of noisy men, likely a reference to the Assyrian oppressors, and a king will break them out. He'll bust them out, and he will lead them, and he will protect them. And the Lord, their king, will lead them. This will be Christ. And the remnant will be the body of Christ, the church, us. We're on a day like today, we receive more members into our local community and we baptize more children into the covenant promises of God and Christ will reign over his church and he will reign over evil. And here we have this reminder that though oppressors will rise up in this world, they will not have the final say. They will all come to ruin as the Lord leads and preserves his people. Things like oppression and injustice and theft and the denigration of personhood and the use of wealth to oppress the poor, all of this will come to ruin. And we see also in here the escalating cost of redemption. The oppressors take from their own neighbors. They just take. But then Assyria comes in and takes all Judah, takes it all. But then... It escalates even further. God gives his son. From the dust you were made, to the dust you shall return. Remember that one day you will die. This is true for 100 out of 100 of us. Or as Anne Lamott said, in 100 years, all new people. In the meantime, We make our way through this life, both on the giving end and the receiving end of transgressions against our neighbors and against God. And if we go through this life just wanting to survive, just wanting to survive the catastrophe of the brokenness all around us, and to do that by somehow elevating ourselves above others, then we we may go about just acquiring things from our weaker neighbors and building our kingdoms that way. But like Monopoly, in the end, it all goes back in the box. So what do we need most? We need redemption. We need to be forgiven. We need to be restored to our creator, and that's how Micah chapter 2 ends. God rescues a remnant from all the warring and all the exploiting and all the dehumanizing and all the idolatry of a scared and desperate humanity that is caught in the clutches of wrath and he does so by way of a cross. In John 3.36, which is just, what, 20 verses after John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 20 verses later, Jesus says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. 
The remnant that Micah speaks about is the church. It's the body of Christ. It's those who look to Christ for rescue from the wrath that our sins deserve. Tim Keller writes this. He says, the Bible does not reveal a God simply of fury or a God simply of love, but a God of love and fury. Because this is a holy God, holy love, holy wrath. It means his settled opposition to evil is working itself out in your life. He has set up the universe so that if you move against God's law, you move against yourself. You can get away with your sins, but you can never get away from your sins. And he did this out of love. End quote. Justice and mercy are joined. The Lord sees the brokenness in this world. He is not blind to it. He sees the brokenness in you too. He sees the brokenness in me. And he has responded to all of it by way of the cross of his son Jesus who atones for our sins. To be part of the remnant is to look to Christ and to trust him. To trust him. Even when it seems like all around us, people just take and take and take. Even when the world seems to be full of the kind of corruption and destruction that we read about in Micah chapter 2. To be part of the remnant is to say of the mercy of Christ in his resurrection, as we read in Hebrews 2.3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? From the dust you were made, to the dust you shall return. Remember that one day you will come to die. But also as we read in John 20, verse 31, God's word is given to us so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, when we read a book like Micah, we are reading an ancient text about an ancient people, an ancient civilization on the other side of the world speaking a language that we don't speak, warring with their neighbors in ways we have not experienced in this era, in America anyway. And yet, we see the continuation of what runs through the hearts of people, a desire to establish ourselves by taking from others, a desire to find ourselves ranked in a pecking order from secure to insecure. And Lord, you remind us that the only way to be saved is to be kept by you. And that's what you do through your covenant. That's what you do through your promises to your people. And so, Lord, we celebrate that and we thank you for it. Help us to see the places in our own lives where we are trying to secure something for ourselves that can only come through the security that you bring. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.